I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where our aim is to help all people worship God in spirit and truth, however that works. We uh, hope we can help. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Okay, here in Utah, there is a, a Christian pastor by the name of Jason Wallace, who runs an Orthodox Presbyterian church in a town called Magna. And he has a weekly television program on KTMW TV 20. That's the station that I used to be on. And for the past number of years, actually, Jason has publicly taken issue with a number of things about me and our church here, campus, Christian Anarchist Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture, and the things I teach primarily. And the past year, he's devoted entire hour-long shows to public criticisms of things that I teach and my, my perspective of things. The Bible tells us that if our brother has ought with us, we are to go to them directly. And I've taken my time in doing this with Jason simply because, uh, one, I've never watched the program. I'm typically not here on Wednesday nights. And so I haven't watched it. I don't have a TV where I live here uh, now, especially. And, uh, but, and I thought maybe he would just stop it, but it, it, he didn't. And, and so I called Jason on Monday and uh, I asked if he wouldn't mind just gathering up all of his criticisms and just leveling them at me in person so that I could respond to them publicly and kind of clear the air instead of, you know, I guess from what I've been told, he'll take this show and edit it up, cut pieces out of it, and then address things about how wrong it is. And to me, that's like taking one scripture out of a chapter. And so I want to be able to kind of defend my positions. Jason agreed very kindly. And he invited me to be on his show tomorrow night. Uh, an hour later, he called back and discovered that the management of TV20 uh, do not want me in the studio, quote. And so Jason asked if we could transfer our meeting um, here. And so uh, he said, and then he will air what we do on his program through TV20. And he'll do it unedited if there's a moderator. So uh, uh, he talked about the moderator. I called the moderator. He'll do it. So next week on Heart of the Matter, join us here. You can be here live at our studio if you'd like. Um, and you can go to www.h camp, campus? campuschurch.tv to get a map and directions. But you can also read about it there. But we're, next week, Tuesday night, 8 to 10 p.m., a two-hour special heart of the matter 
where Jace, Pastor Jason Wallace is going to present the problems that he has with many of the things that I teach. Seating is limited. We might not even have many here, but when we did the Inquisition, we had a full house. I don't know what this will bring, but seating is limited, so get here early just in case it fills up. Okay, all right. Why don't we bring back from the Word and start teaching segments on the Bible again? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Apologies to our campus uh, people, but because uh, I talked about this on Sunday, but in John chapter 16, Jesus has been preparing his 11 disciples to go out and, uh, uh, and teach and to prepare them for suffering in the cause of that and for his death. And he tells them, he actually prophesies to them in verse 2 of chapter 16, and they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he is doing God's service. I would suggest to you that this, these words actually present a fact, they present a prophecy, and they also present a model for us in our age. The fact is that they had already kicked Jesus out of the synagogue, and they were about to kill him, believing they were doing God's will. So there's the fact about what he said relative to himself. The prophecy, if you would, was that they would do this to his apostles too. We read about that in Acts. And the model is that the same religious mindset uh, has been in people for centuries to ostracize, hurt, attack, malign, kill, kick out of church, uh, thinking that they are doing God's business. In other words, if a person knows the Father and they have a heart for Jesus uh, beating in their chest and they let that love shine for other people, you can bet your bottom dollar that the people who will be hardest on them, who will hate them the most, will come from orthodoxy. Orthodoxy typically breeds, typically, not always, but typically breeds uh, a certain uh, passion for liberal views. And Jesus tells these humble fishers of men that they will not only be cast out of synagogues, but the people who do these things will be fully convinced that if they kill them, they are doing it in God's name. Interestingly enough, one of the greatest persecutors of the apostles in the early church, Jesus' first 11 chosen apostles, was a guy named Saul. And we covered this. Remember in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. So we have evidence there of Saul. He's, he's, he's actually fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus gave there in John 16. In Galatians 1.3, Paul himself said, For you have heard of my conversion in time past of the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He says, uh, it says of Paul in Acts 26, 9 through 11, Paul says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought to myself, this is a good thing to do. 
which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities." End quote. Paul absolutely committed to his faith. He says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous, devout. As a result, he felt it was his duty to persecute and even kill Christians. That's definitely commitment. Can't question Paul's devotion. There's a quote from a church historian, old church historian named Thomas Fuller, who said, zeal without knowledge is fire without light. Zeal without knowledge is fire without light. It's a great quote from this church historian because what reason does Jesus give for these men of misguided devotion, including Saul at one point, taking action to where they will kick people out of places of worship and even put them to death? He tells us in the next verse. He says, And these things they will do unto you because... They have not known the Father nor me. And in other words, they had a zeal for the things of God without a knowledge of God himself, who is love, who is kindness, who is light, who loved us so much he sent his only begotten son, and they miss out. They have the things of God right. Paul had the things of God in his mind from the Old Testament down, but he didn't know God. He didn't meet Jesus until on the road to Damascus. So under the law, it was customary for Jews to want to destroy anybody who was doing things that they thought they shouldn't. They stoned people for, for such things. And this, this heart carried over into the people at Jesus' time, even his apostles. Listen to this. In, Mark, in, excuse me, in Luke chapter 9, we read about this attitude in the heart of the apostles. But take note of what Jesus says to his apostles, okay? For Luke 9, 51, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into the village of Samaritans to make ready for him. Okay? And they did not receive him because his face was as though he was going to go to Jerusalem. It seems like they perceived that Jesus wasn't interested in them at this point. It made them mad. So they didn't receive him. They didn't show hospitality to Jesus and his apostles. Verse 54, And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Life eternal, Jesus says in John 17, 3, is to know the only true and living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If we miss knowing them, we are sure to miss knowing how they would respond to other people. And I've done that. I have missed knowing how to respond to other human beings who have feelings, and I, I'm, I'm the most guilty. And so I get this, what, how zeal can take over uh, what God is about, which is love. So to the Jew... Jesus and his apostles deserved death. To them, they were blasphemers. 
but lacking a real knowledge of the invisible God and Jesus who God sent into the world. They missed the whole point and purpose of God. They missed his true identity and they ended up doing the opposite. They killed the son that God sent into the world. Such responses have thrived in the hearts of religious people of orthodoxy for so long. If you take the time to read about church history, it's no wonder that our critics can, can say, who would want to belong? Have you seen what people have done in God's name? Heretics have long been subject to Christian, the Christian rack and to be lit on flames. Witches, suspected witches were taken and drowned. And if they drowned, that meant they weren't witches. I mean, all kinds of things. There's been doctrinal wars where tens of thousands of people have been killed and tortured. Uh, the Crusades, which were the Inquisitions, all of this stuff, all of it comes from orthodoxy saying, no, 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 it has to be this way, you know? And I just don't see that being what Jesus is about. Jesus again says why they've done this over the centuries because they have not known the Father nor me. We might think we are far removed from this type of stuff, but we all, myself again included, have done things thinking we are doing God's cause, thinking we are representing his repulsion, thinking we are representing his justice, his revenge, his heart for evil, and we lash out and we, we don't know him when we do, in my opinion. I would strongly suggest, and I, again, looking in the mirror, but I would suggest that any time we justify hatred, evil, revenge, controlling people, punishing people, kicking them out of the church, kicking them out of the synagogue, thinking they would be better off dead than in our presence, we have lost our, the true concept of who God is and or his son. Okay, I have a dear brother and friend named Mark who's an ardent seeker of truth. He comes to our campus gatherings typically in the afternoon. He, last Sunday he passed a book on to me that many Christians would, would be aware of. I have heard of this man, but I've never read this book until I started uh, two days ago. But Mark passed this book on. It's called Farewell to God. And the book is written by Charles Templeton. Now, Christian, people who have been Christian for 20 or 30 years or people who have followed Billy Graham might be aware of this man. Uh, Charles Templeton was a good friend of Billy Graham. He was a traveling evangelist. He was extremely popular. On the back of this, this picture right here shows him standing before an enormous crowd in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which happens to be where I serve my LDS mission. And this was Charles Templeton preaching here at this great revival. He was Canadian. He was the Canadian Billy Graham. And he and Billy Graham were good friends. Billy Graham took a certain course. And Charles Templeton, he took a course too. He went to Princeton uh, after his, his uh, mass evangelism. And he became uh, uh, more and more convinced of problems within the, uh, the Christian church. And, um, and so they started to plague him. And the thing that's interesting about this, and I've only read the first four or five chapters so far, um, is that the very things that we are addressing that are troubling in the body and that present difficulty in the Mormon Christian debate, they are the same things that drove Charles Templeton away from the body of Christ. He wasn't getting any answers. And the problem was when he talked with Billy Graham about it, 
Billy Graham's responses, which are, which are very valiant, where if it says it in the Bible, I believe it. And Templeton said, wait a minute, we have to talk about this stuff. And the thing that drove him crazy was the door wasn't open for conversation for divergent views. And so in the end, this is what we have, farewell to God. So he goes on and he kind of delineates a bunch of stuff that really troubled him. And I'm going to show you a few quotes that have come up just in the first five chapters. For instance, on page 19, Templeton says, There is no need to erect costly temples, to follow elaborate forms of worship, or to sanctify ordinary men on the presumption that by virtue of their vocation, they have special access to the truth, end quote. You know what that's saying? The visible church and all this authority and all this costly buildings and tithes and all this array. He goes on and talks about the clothing. He talks about the joke of love offerings and what a scam that is. And he's been in it. He's not someone who hasn't been in it. He's been in it. He sees it. He was calling that stuff out. This thing was printed in 1996. He's been involved in it since 1940. He has seen these things, but he couldn't get anyone to say, yeah, let's talk about it. Now, the book to me is really sad because I can sense and see a grind against God that is building in him. And I looked a little bit ahead at some of the chapter headings, and he's going hardcore against Christ. How unfortunate that at that time in, in his life, there wasn't some viable answers to what he was, that was troubling him. Um, he goes on, he says on page 23, after describing that there are many gods, which Paul admits to, he says, most of the gods require unquestioning obedience. This is something that he's kind of mocking. Most of the gods out there in the world require unquestioning obedience. Well, that's not so uh, wild of a thought. Of course, God is, any god is going to require unquestioning obedience. The thing that surprises me is Templeton misses that the god that we worship, the obedience he requires is to believe and to love. Templeton doesn't mention that. He just goes to the religious side. It's really unfortunate that a guy could be so involved and he, he still continues to think that the Christian God's demands on people are anything more than to believe and especially to love. He doesn't seem to get that yet. Another one uh, he mentions, quotes, he says, uh, speaking of Jesus, that there's no under name there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you may be saved, for there is salvation and no other. He's quoting from Acts, and he says, this is insufferably presumptuous for the writer to say there's no other name by which you can be saved. Now, obviously, he's way off from the Christian mark on that, right? But later on, a few, chapter, a few verses later, uh, paragraphs later, this is what he says. The implication of this belief is clear. It is that the vast majority of the men, women, and children who have lived on earth are in hell, suffering endless torment, and will remain in this condition forever, end quote. You see, and this is a theme that's starting to come up. Brother Templeton, friend of Billy Graham, possessor of, a, of an honorary doctorate, uh, evangelist to hundreds of thousands of people. You have abandoned your first love based off the traditional teachings from men 
about what the Bible says. That is so unfortunate. And it's unfortunate because you probably haven't been allowed to explore these concepts openly within the body because we have so rigidly defined what is true and what is not. It makes me sick. Templeton goes on on page 29 and says, there's no such thing as the church in a brick and mortar sense. Amen, Brother Templeton. And we're going to spend some time right now supporting that claim. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we seek you in spirit and in truth. Help us to love. Don't allow us to become so dogmatic that we miss the bullseye, the mark that you have called us to, and that is love. You are love. It does manifest itself in different ways, Lord, but we pray you will keep us in your love and you will help us to be loving as we pursue the truth openly, uh, courageously, and without fear. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we introduced the idea that God, primarily related to the nation of Israel, physically, he sent a physical Messiah who lived a physical life, died a physical death, rose, a, rose physically from the grave, and returned physically, and that Jesus chose 12 apostles, 11 who continued on with him, who were physical men to establish his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, a physical church, and that Jerusalem was physically destroyed as prophesied, and Christ came back and saved those who were believers. In other words, what I intimated is that Christ's kingdom today, because all the physical things have been fulfilled in the record of the physical church, the physical house of Israel, everything in this book, that today... Everything is spiritual. When viewed in this manner, we begin to see how the baptisms of John, you know, John had a big following, physical baptisms in water, so big and important. But John says himself, the guy who's coming after me, he says, yeah, I baptize in water, physical water. But the guy who's coming after me who will baptize in spirit and with fire, with the spirit and with fire, he's talking about that internal he says, I'm not even worthy to latch his shoe, to tie that guy's shoes. That's the difference between a physical application to religion and the spiritual application that we're talking about. The Bible, pure and simple, is a history of the physical economy, but it is sprinkled throughout the New Testament with insights on the spirit that we pursue in the church today. Uh, if I am correct on this, I could be wrong, but if I'm correct, the Christian church ought to start rethinking its point and purpose of brick-and-mortar institution, ecclesiastical leadership, so-called, and all the ordinances and rituals, tithes, demands, placed upon themselves and upon other people. We ought to start doing that now, because this shift will help not only in the Mormon Christian debate, but it will help Christianity to continue on in a much better way than what it has in the past 2,000 years. Now, it is one thing to suggest that the Bible presents the physical church, and just for me to come up here and say this, and then to show from the Bible, from the New Testament, that the church is now spiritual, completely spiritual. And that's what I want to do right now. I want to give you nine verses. I'm going to begin with 1 Corinthians 15, 46, 48. Now, this is not a super strong evidence uh, support for my position that the church now is all spiritual, not brick and mortar. We can gather together. I'm not saying we don't gather together, but it is to increase our spiritual drive by faith and love, and that's it. Okay, so let's read this first one. 1 Corinthians 15, 46, 48. How be it, 
Paul says, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly, talking about Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Now, it's just a couple passages, but the, the tenor of those passages is, yes, we have carnal life. We have the first man, Adam. We have the fallen world, all of that. But the real second Adam is from heaven. And when we relate to him, we are heavenly. That has, doesn't have much to do with this terra firma. It doesn't have much to do with ordinances and stuff. But I know that passage, it can be, there's different meanings to it. I get that. Let's go to the next one. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, it gets a little bit more to the point. Listen to what Paul says. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, listen, the things of God knows no man, but the spirit of God. Not, de not degrees, not, not uh, advanced degrees from college. It's the spirit of God that we know the spiritual things of God. Do you see that? Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. That's how we know them. We don't know them from any other way. We don't know them from a man who's in carnal flesh. We can discern spiritual things from them, but we do not know things from them. We know it from God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual you recognize this. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things. Listen, yet he himself is judged of no man. The Spirit is everything. Right there it says it for us. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. It says a lot. Read that to your church ecclesiastical leader. If he starts to get up in his haunches about his authority and his ability to discern things for you from the pulpit that you need to understand, read that to him and say, this is a spirit that I go by and it's the spirit that I, when I read the word and it has no connection to you, Mr. Man. Okay? Hebrews 8.10 we read the following. Now listen, we are all Israel once we come to Christ. Paul makes that clear in Romans. This is what it says. For this is the covenant that God says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people and they shall not Teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. 
for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. Does, doesn't that sound like a spiritual church of believers where he is in our minds and he is in our hearts? How can another man or a woman take you aside and say, listen, this is what you need to know from the Lord when his spirit is here. Now we can, we can take teachings. We all learn from teachings. I teach every week, but I'm just a man. And so is everybody else who's in this game. But it's the spirit that works in us and you have every single right. You have the responsibility because you're the one who's responsible when you stand before God for what you did with your spirit, with your life, with your mind. Not me, not your pastor, not your bishop. It's a spiritual church made up of spiritual believers. How about a short one? We read it, we memorize it, we say it. Listen to what it says really quickly. One verse, Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The Jews, they were used to that physical economy. I do good, I get rewarded physically. The Christians, they do good, they're not rewarded, they're persecuted because it's in heavenly places where our rewards remain. Of course, throughout the Bible, we read of wars, we read of warfare, all of these pictures, all of these battles, chariots, horses, swords, death, killing, etc., etc. That's all gone in Jesus' name. All that physical warfare stuff, picturing Christianity, it's all transferred to spiritual skirmish, skirmishes, folks. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Okay, the weaponry of our warfare described, the approach of the warfare, how we engage in the warfare is all right here. Listen to the key words, okay? See if you note anything about the physical, going out, marching, anything like this. Ready? Finally, brethren, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. There's the first key. That's a spiritual thing. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darknesses in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. How do we wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness? It's all through spiritual means. It's all through the spirit that we wrestle with that. We don't wrestle, he says, with flesh and blood. We do not wrestle at all with flesh and blood. Next week, I'm going to wrestle with flesh and blood because the flesh and blood continues to attack. It has nothing to do with this, but that's what we're going to do. He goes on and he says, Wherefore, take on you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand the evil in the day and having done all to stand. That means spiritually. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. That's spiritual truth there. And having on the breastplate of iron, righteousness. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of aluminum, brass, whatever they used. Faith. Wherewith you were able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Are those literal fiery darts? None of it is literal, physical. It's all spiritual. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the Word of God. That's the only physical thing there, and that's also Christ. And we discern the Word of God by our spirit, praying always in all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. It is all a spiritual warfare. It's all spiritual economy. It's all spiritual engagement. It's spiritual fellowship. It has nothing to do with physical empires, physical blood leaders. It has nothing to do with the hierarchies of organizations. Every whit of this advice spiritual. What about Peter? Speaking of Jesus, he said, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, speaking of Jesus, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And then speaking of believers, Peter says, you also are lively stones, as lively stones are built up for a spiritual house. There, the house is made with hands, temples made with hands, churches made with hands. <clears throat> baloney, baloney, putting people under burden to build these churches made with hands. <clears throat> all the dreams of men, all their little machinations, all their flesh getting involved. Nothing to do with Christianity, which is by the Spirit. By the Spirit. All right. Talking about Gentiles being alienated from God's chosen nation, Paul says this. Now, therefore, Ephesians 2, 19, you are no more, you Gentiles, strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of, that means it's been laid, the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. We know Christ's body is not there in that cornerstone. We know the apostles' bodies are not in the foundation. What they contributed to spiritually laid this foundation, prophets too, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Did you catch that? That we are built upon this foundation and that we are, the whole building is fit together as a holy temple in whom you also are builded together, he says in verse 22, for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. This is a spiritual house. Nothing to do with building up you notice Paul then says, yes, now go and build up brick and mortar churches. It's all the spirit. Spiritual body. But let me end right now, and then we'll go to the phones and a message, and uh, we'll go to the phones and emails. Let me end with the coup de gras. It's not easy to understand, but it is the coup de gras, in my opinion, to anything physical, having any precedence in the Christian body. You ready? It comes from Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is constantly telling the Hebrew believers, listen, what happened before in the Old Covenant, physical, it had merit. But what we have today is the best. It's better than anything that was there in the Old. Okay? So he starts off and he says to believers, Hebrews 12, 18, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness, nor darkness, nor tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice with words, the voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. What that is saying is, and you haven't come to Mount Sinai, when Moses went there and the children of Israel waited, that burned and smoked, and when the voice spoke from there, it shook everything and scared them, and they said, no more, no more, we don't want to hear anymore. You have not come to that, he goes on. 
for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so, as much as a beast touched that mountain, it would be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I fear exceedingly and quake. He says, you haven't come to that mountain. That is not what you've come to in this relationship here. Okay, not this physical place at all. He says, verse 22, but stay with me, stay with me, but you are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. Where is the city of the living God? You tell me. The heavenly Jerusalem. There's an old Jerusalem physically. Now there's a heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which were written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. He's making a comparison. That's all he's doing. He's making a comparison of the old way to the new way. The new way is a heavenly Jerusalem. The old way is a physical Jerusalem. The, the old way is a mountain that burned and trembled and shook and smoked and people died if they touched it. The new way is completely different. Now listen, he says, verse 25, see then that you refuse not him that speaks. Talking about God. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, talking about Moses, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Okay, now we're talking about, he says, don't turn away from this. They didn't escape when they didn't listen to Moses. We're not going to escape if we don't, if we turn away from the voice from heaven. Now here's the big, here are the last verses that crush the physical idea. Whose voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. He's talking about his coming to Jerusalem and destroying it. Once more, I'm not only going to shake the earth, I'm going to shake heaven. Now listen what he says. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, physical things, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. He says, let me tell you one more time, I'm going to come and I'm going to shake not only this earth, I'm shaking heaven too, and I'm going to shake anything that can be moved down to the dust. Nothing in this kingdom is going to be based on physical things. Anything that can shake is going to be leveled. Why? So the things which cannot be shaken may remain, he says. Now look to the last verse. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace. And he goes on. Now let me ask you a question. Can a church be moved? Can the bricks of a church, can the pastor of a church be shaken? Can the doctrines be shaken? Yeah, they can. Can all the stuff that men create be shaken? Ted Haggard, Sean McCraney, we are nothing. Any of us, we can be shaken. These are, this is not what the kingdom is. The kingdom is a spiritual presence within us. The kingdom of God is within us. And it is monitored in a heavenly place. 
And God has written his laws upon our minds and upon our heart. And until we make this transfer over, we're going to have another 2,000 years of utter misery. Of churches playing church, of pastors playing God, of people playing doctrine. And bottom line, God has put his doctrine already in you by virtue of the shed blood of his son. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Before we go to the phones and emails, take a look at this. One, two, three, one, two, three. Blessed We put the Word of God to music for a reason. It's the Word of God that changes lives. It's the Word of God that empowers a person. It's the Word of God that takes the evil out of us slowly sometimes, washes it away, and bit by bit, our souls get converted to that heavenly kingdom we've been talking about. So consider that. Two things, two true stories. We used to promote a place here in town that was a great Christian uh, mechanic. I mean, Derek introduced me to him, and I took all of our vehicles to him. A great mechanic. Well, a couple months ago, I go in there, and he's like kicking back. It's like, hey, you know, what's up? And I said, hey, I got this thing. Okay, you know, I'm glad you came in because I'm leaving. Where are you going? I'm getting out of here, man. How come? Getting out of the end is near. The end is near? Yeah, I'm going up to the hills. I'm getting out of this mess. You know, I can see the signs, and you go rattled off stuff about Obama, he rattled off stuff about the end times, the apocalypse, he rattled off stuff about all the stuff coming up, and he didn't want to be part of it, and man, he's gone. We lost a mechanic. <laughs> That's all I care about. I'm just kidding. But it shows the power of the preaching of doom is on the way, and the fear now, that's a subtle story. Let me give you another story that is true and horrifying. Let me show you a picture of a family. Go ahead, you guys. This is the Strack family. You know where they live? You know where they lived? They lived in Springville, Utah, right here in this state. And apparently, um, a letter was found after this entire family, except the little guy there on the left. He was alive, but the rest of them were dead in their house. And the authorities couldn't really figure out how they died. There's no signs of violence or anything. 
So they found a uh, letter from the 14-year-old who said he knows he's going to die, and he left his possessions to his friend. And then they started looking at these cups of red liquid by all their beds and stuff, and they come to find out the parents, in order to escape the impending doom, they were concerned with the evil in the world and, the prepare, and facing the apocalypse. They decided to get out of here early. Now, we think, you know, that's really an extreme case, and it is. But we still have the same mindset going on in people who are walking around alive. And they walk around alive, and they've been walking around alive for 2,000 years with the mindset that the apocalypse is falling on their head. The stuff does matter. That's why we talk about it. Because it does present a mindset. Now, let's say I'm wrong. Let's say the apocalypse is around the corner. Couldn't we teach it that we trust in the Lord and he's going to take care of us and there's nothing to fear at all? Instead of, you better be ready. You better get your house in order. You better not receive that mark. You better not. Instead of all that, can't we say, let's trust the Lord? who is our God and King, instead of heaping all this stuff on people's heads. And if I'm right about the end times, then we've really made a mistake of all this stuff. Some things to think about. Let's go to William in Scotland. This is awesome. William! You're on Hard Matter. You're on the air, William. Cheers. It's a great show. I love your passion. I've been following you for a few months now, and I fully endorse the display of integrity and the pursuit of truth you exemplify on your platform. You know, a lot of mainstream churchgoers with their unbiblical trinitas and their imagined futurist uh, end times narratives, they won't hesitate to charge with heresy. And uh, it's not that they know better because they don't. You know, I want to plug a couple people here. You know, like Don Preston and his preterist arguments are, they're just, I've seen people try to challenge them and they do such a poor job. Don Preston is a top man and uh, there's a YouTuber, The Trinity Delusion, who I'd recommend people check out. Um, and again, just great arguments. And I just get a sense that a lot of people, a lot of mainstream church scores are so insecure and uh, ignorant. They'll charge you with heresy because Basically, they've been conditioned to do so by man and nations. They've been indoctrinated by men, as I once was, and not taught by God's word, Jesus Christ. It's, you know, it's, like, it's a your discussion, you know? William, I'm glad I know yeah. I'm a, a heterosexual, because I just fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> Your mind, I love your idea, I love your directness, I love the accent, and I thank you for sharing those resources. Thanks for watching. Let's uh, just keep trying, right, my brother? We'll try to get a translation of that. We're breaking up. Thank you, my brother. God bless you. Bye-bye. It's like talking to William Wallace. Braveheart! We need more of them! I'm trying to remember a line from it. I can't get it. Uh, you can't take our freedom! <laughs> Love, William! One of my favorite calls in the past five years or whatever. 
Uh, let's go to Jeff in Danbury, Connecticut. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, hi, Sean. Hello, yeah. my friend. Hey, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I love this topic. It's been an important part of my, my uh, witnessing and, and testimony for the Lord for a while. I just want to bring up a couple points maybe you could add on. And the first one being when I was going to a local, what they called a quote-unquote local church, the Baptist church, they would preach local and use scriptures, say the body, and t take the body and say, no, it's supposed to, that means your local church. So and I oh. thought it was very damaging because it would take our brothers and sisters from other buildings and make them like, oh, no, they're a different body. Oh. So what we used to do is say, all right, well, God must be a polygamist then, because if the church is the bride, then how many brides does he have? <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's so it would great. Be a great point to bring up when we were talking to people. And, and the other point that kind of what you're talking about tonight, I like to think of, is when David danced before the ark. Yeah. When he was, when he, he was wearing that, the ephod. Yeah. And that was a really high royal priesthood garment that, that uh, the priest would only wear. And he was wearing and dancing in a manner where. I think it was Saul's daughter that got really upset. Yeah. Seeing, all right, well, who's he? He can't dance. He can't act like that. Who's he? You know? Oh, yeah. And then she got cursed later on. So I kind of see that like when we become that royal priesthood and people say, oh, what kind of authority do you have to, oh. to be in the demeanor that you're in? You know? And so I just kind of wanted to add to those, those two points. Hopefully that will strengthen your, uh, your case tonight. Hey, Tyler, the second call that's challenging my sexuality. No, I'm just, kidding. I'm just kidding, you guys. No, that is beautiful stuff. And way to, I mean, what a great way to see uh, David's dancing there and, and, and how his wife was so condemnatory of him and, and just the way you've tied Scripture in. And, you know, that local church little thing, you know, first support the local church. It's, what a ploy. It's just a yeah. ploy. Really good yep. stuff. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yep, no problem. God bless. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right, from our uh, strange letters and emails and things, uh, this is an actual letter uh, from a Christian mother who learned that her daughter is a lesbian. This is not easy stuff. Uh, she wrote, my daughter, uh, Cara Louise, in all my years of life, yesterday was the worst day. Not only have you turned your back on me and dad, but you've turned your back on God. Cle clearly he is testing you and you have failed this test. By the way, we've been studying James, and in chapter 1 of James, it says that God does not test, tempt and test. The word is test in the Greek, does not test us. So, so I, I, I'm afraid that she's wrong on that automatically. I don't know what I did wrong to raise a lesbian daughter. Maybe God is punishing me again, again. All I know is I couldn't sleep last night, and when I did for only five minutes, all I could think of was your perverted lifestyle. I am sorry, but your dad and I cannot accept you back into our house as long as you are following the deeds of the devil. We still love you, but we cannot accept you as our daughter as long as you are living your life in sin. Uh, and then she goes on and she signs it, your mother. Now, we know uh, that we all have sin. I wonder if the mother calculated her sin into this. What if her daughter, when she understood her mom's sin, whatever it would be, said, you know, I don't want you to be my mother anymore. You're not going to be my mother because I know that you... Uh, covet our neighbor, and coveting is one of the ten. You covet our neighbor's car, mom, or you gossip, or you're mean, or whatever it is, sins of the heart. But instead, we have allowed ourselves to take the outward fleshly sins that all of us have to some degree or another and make them the big thing, even to the point where we kick daughters out and tell them that they are not uh, believers. 
that they have turned their back on God. Uh, you know, I have not turned my back on God. I love God and the Lord Jesus Christ who's taken me a sinner, but I still sin. I still sin. And uh, I have not turned my back on God amidst my sin. And so it's wrong, I think, when we say if someone has sinned or is in sin or trapped in sin that they have turned their back on God. There's been people who have actually said that if you have done this or doing this, you are not a Christian. I don't know what's happened to this, this good news that we have where he came and lived it and saved us for it. Tina wrote about Wiccans. This is from the internet. She's a Christian. Wiccans should have their kids taken away. Anyone who isn't raising their children in a Christian home should have their children taken away. It's mental, emotional, spiritual abuse, period. End of discussion. Case closed. It's unreal. The zeal. In response to a New Zealand earthquake where dozens of people were killed, the, mass, the site master of TrustHim.org wrote, Start looking up and put an emoticon that's like this. At the death of people who have died in the earthquake. A mother who is raising a son on Rapture Ready website said, Hi all, our five-year-old son told us that he wants to buy flowers for a girl at school during Valentine's Day and she likes him. We were shocked, to say the least, and we never expected this. We didn't show our shock to him because we're trying to encourage him to speak to us about anything bothering him in case he encounters some problem at school like bullying, but we don't know how to manage this. We are glad he told us, which gives us an idea of what's happening in his mind. But how do we manage this biblically? First, does he break Matthew 5, 28? Or is it just an innocent child stage? Secondly, will this crush end or uh, move him in some stage or another? Or is it a gateway to fornication? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was a joke, too. That was a joke, too. <laughs> I just realized just how difficult it is trying to raise children of God. Oh, my sister, you raise children of God by loving them as God loved them. And God, you know, meant for little boys to have crushes on little girls and want to give them flowers. And he put that into us. And it's an, it's an okay thing, sister. Uh, I'm going to skip this one too long. Um, this is from an article from the Calgary Herald in Vancouver, B.C. Water torture of babies is one of the ways some members of the FLDS instill fear of authority, a former member testified on Wednesday. It's quite common. Carolyn Blackmore Jessup told the constitutional reference case to determine whether Canada's polygamy law is valid. They spank the baby, and when it cries, they hold the baby's face up under the tap with running water. When they stop crying, they spank it again, and the cycle is repeated until they are exhausted. It's typically done by fathers, and it's called breaking in. Jessup, who is from Arizona, testified about the practice during her testimony in the British Columbia Supreme Court. Outside the courthouse, Jessup said water torture is common enough that there doesn't seem to be any shame associated with the practice. Again, breaking the child through measures like this. And this is just like emblematic 
of all the other ways that we attempt to break people, adults, people who have divergent thoughts, divergent lifestyles, divergent actions, who are failing and all that. This is how we do it. That's just emblematic of it. We take adults, we hold their face under the water, we get them to cry, we torture them until they're exhausted, and then they feel as though they've repented and changed. It's all this religiousness. It's a spiritual thing we need to change and get to. Uh, this is a noted Christian apologist who was asked by an atheist online. Here's the quote. How do you explain things like the blind spot in the human eye? And this is an argument that's pushing toward uh, a case for evolution, I'm sure. Uh, that blind spot is known as punctium seum in medical journals. It's a real thing. We all have a blind spot. It's where the optic nerve attaches into the eye, and that circle there doesn't have vision because there's no... So they can prove it through ocular tests and ophthalmology and stuff like that. The response from this noted Christian apologist was this. I don't have a blind spot in my eye. Both of them see very well, and I'm thankful for 137 million light-sensitive cells that make this possible. Do you have a blind spot in your eye? If you do, I suggest you see an optician and see if he can fix it or get another eye. <laughs> now, oh yeah, I know, it's funny. What a, what a smarmy, witty response to the atheist to win the battle, because that's what it's about, is to win the battle, not to try to come to some kind of conclusion. How come this noted apologist doesn't say, you know, I don't have an answer for the blind spot. And relative to the argument of evolution, maybe you have a point there. Why can't we give a little? We're not going to lose the fact that God loves us, that there's a creation, that Jesus saved us, that he died on the cross. That's a spiritual knowledge that can't be removed from us. Why do we fear so much that we have to respond to things like this? I don't know. Okay. Uh, and then just to show, be fair, human idiocy, it comes about on all sides. William Goodell said on the BBC News, religion should be banned and those promoting it should be sent to prison for life without parole. <laughs> I mean, that's just the other side. Uh, one thing that, uh, that uh, Templeton points out, he says he's now an agnostic. He mocks atheists and he mocks theists. Because he says both are operating from a stance of faith. Now, of course, I'm a theist, and, and he can mock me all he wants. I'm going to stand on faith. But he claims, and he brings out some good points, an atheist is just as faithful in, in their pronouncements and doctrines and thoughts as a Christian theist is. So he says he's an agnostic, and, and uh, I think that's an interesting thing. So when someone says here, banning all churches and sent to prison for life if you teach it. I think it's crazy. <sighs> on the healthcare front, we read on Disgrace Book, and we'll wrap it up with this. Person one says, if socialized healthcare were proposed in, say, the 1920s and it flourished, we would be fighting to keep it in place. Europe is doing well with their healthcare, end quote. Person two a Christian, this isn't Europe, two exclamation points. This is America. This is a Christian nation, and universal health care is unchristian. End of story. So uh, it's these type of things that until we kind of step up to the plate and start being a little bit more reasonable, I'm not saying sell out gospel truths. I'm not saying ever turn from the, the, uh, the faith that we have or the truths that we have. But I am saying let's start to pull back from all the rhetoric 
that engages us this way, and let's just try to reasonably present our arguments so that people are attracted to the good news rather than distracted by it or pushed away from it. We love you guys. Next week, Jason Wallace, Pastor Jason Wallace, uh, is going to confront me with his concerns about my teachings. I'm going to be able to respond. It's going to be a two-hour special here on Heart of the Matter. See you then. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel.